So most of you know that I taught high school English for a little while before I became a pastor. So I had the privilege when I'm, you know, teaching language and literature, I would uh, get to talk about a book before the kids read it to try to get them psyched up for reading The Scarlet Letter. And they're, they're rolling their eyes and moaning. They've already heard that this work was written by some Puritan. And I was explaining to them just the richness that they would find in a book like The Scarlet Letter. And so today we get to do something like that, give you an introduction to Acts. I hope we'll find here is some helpful things to know and consider in order to get the most out of reading and studying this book together. So this is an introduction to Acts. Read with me first Luke's own introduction in the first two verses of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So we're going to ask a series of questions this morning. If you have a handout, you'll see them there. We'll also splash them up on the screen for you. Or why is Acts an important book in our Bibles? We'll answer that question. What kind of book is Acts? Why was it written? How is it organized? What should we expect to learn in Acts? And finally, give you a little homework and application. What should you walk away with today? Why is Acts an important book in our Bibles? You may know this, but you may not, that Luke, Acts together makes up more than one quarter of your New Testament scriptures. That's more than 25% of your New Testament is Luke, Acts. So not only would this New Testament portion of your Bibles be shorter, but we would find a significant deficiency where the book of Acts, Acts, pun intended, as a bridge between the Gospels and all of the epistles, especially. So this bridge, this, this is one of the unique contributions of the book of Acts. It's no exaggeration to say that this work, Acts, literally fills the gaps for us in the New Testament narrative between the Gospels and all the rest of the New Testament teaching, which is based upon, as Luke says here, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus continued his work in Acts by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. We'll come back to that again later. So Acts provides for us the historical backdrop for the birth of the churches to whom the, the letters that we have, the epistles, Acts provides the backdrop for the establishment and growth of those churches. Even some of the specific detail in the situations and the people involved, such as Timothy and Luke himself. It gives context to the development of the early church, as we're saying, in its history, geography, culture, politics, society. We learn of the early church's growing pains in, in the transition between being a Jewish phenomenon to being universal. God has invited the Gentiles in as well, even to being primarily a Gentile movement is Christianity. As it spreads across the globe, again, more on that later. 
So a second thing that makes the book of Acts extremely important for us is that where we left off at the end of the, the gospel of Luke, Jesus made some promises. And we, we know that God has also made some promises, and Jesus did not fulfill those exactly in the way that they had anticipated. So Jesus continues fulfilling his promises in the book of Acts. A couple of the examples are that he fulfills his promises to his disciples. He told them specifically that he would send the Spirit. And where we left off in Luke, he had not done that yet. So we will see again in the early verses of Acts, Jesus is fulfilling very literally his promise to empower them and to guide them by sending the Spirit to help them be faithful as his followers. Through the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then, Jesus is fulfilling God's purpose to save the Gentiles through Israel. Different than what we expected, particularly different than what the Jews expected, but this is how it will be accomplished through the church. Another thing to notice in the importance of Luke is is the transformation and the trustworthiness of the apostles themselves. Jesus' apostles became the foundation of the early church, so it stands to reason that establishing how Christ changed them and how they become worthy servant leaders of the church is helpful for us. You can, I think of a couple of them in particular because these are some important people in the book of Acts. Think about Peter. Think where Peter was left. Peter is none too impressive. The way the apostles were left as nearly invisible at the end of the Gospels, in fact, most of the work being accomplished by Jesus, Jesus doing exactly what he said he was going to do, him restoring some of them, to himself after their unfaithfulness, and yet they don't seem ready to carry out the mission that Jesus gave for them. And so we find Peter being changed, Peter being someone completely different. In fact, when we hear Peter write to the churches and say, suffer like Christ, and in him you will have hope, and we learn that Peter himself knew exactly what he was talking about. And Peter himself, like the song we sang, he proved Jesus over and over again. And so he could tell them that it was worth suffering for Christ. Consider the credibility of the Apostle Paul. We don't even know him yet. We find out in Acts that the Apostle Paul is this persecutor of the church. And then we have 13 letters in the New Testament written by this apostle. And we wouldn't know where he came from. We have the establishment of the credibility of the ministry and the true apostleship of Paul. Another really important factor of the book of Acts is that it takes us from these first followers to subsequent generations. The story begins in verse 2 with the apostles whom he had chosen but then we discover, and this is an important emphasis in Acts, that the word of the Lord which is the good news of of restoration to God through Jesus, that word of the Lord quickly spreads and it becomes the foundation for a second generation, those who are converted to Christ from the teaching of the apostles, and then a third generation, those who convert from the teaching of the second generation, and so on. We see that process beginning in Acts. And the reason that's so helpful to us is that it begins to bridge the distance between Jesus and his immediate followers to subsequent generations of believers who are 
empowered and guided by the Spirit to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in every generation, including our own. The power of God at work to bring people into submission to Jesus as Lord by the Holy Spirit that he has given us, not just for the apostles, but for all of Christ's followers. And what kind of book is this book of Acts? Why was it written? How is it organized? We learn here right away that Acts is the second volume written by Luke, picking up where his gospel account concluded in the first book, O Theophilus. Since the early days of the church, at least by the second century, there was not really any controversy anymore over whether or not this, these two were written by Luke. He never talks about himself, um, except where he's the author in Acts at some point starts saying we, right? In Acts 16, we hear passages of we. So we feel like the tradition that Luke wrote, the gospel of Luke, and Luke wrote Acts is a solid, trustworthy tradition. And the reason I want to lead into these questions with this is that it's, it's in this second volume where the relationship and the role of the author becomes more interesting and more relevant. Although the author does begin to say, as I mentioned, we in places, here at the outset, this is the only real opportunity now in an introduction to Acts is the only opportunity I feel like we have to talk about Luke. What's neat when you're going through the Bible is you encounter characters and you get to talk about how God impacted those people, right? The ideal place to talk about God's impact on Luke is right now. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about this valuable conversation to discuss God's work in Luke. In a couple of Paul's letters, namely the ones written to Colossae, that's Colossians and Philemon, we also discover Paul referencing Luke as a physician, Colossians 4.14. So we believe that Luke was a physical or a, a medical physician of some kind, and he probably helped Paul in that way. Paul also says in Philemon verse 24 that he's a co-laborer, But again, it's in Acts where we learn of Luke accompanying Paul on some of his journeys in ministry, undoubtedly because Luke was converted to Christ, and then he determined to serve the Lord in whatever way he might be useful to this missionary endeavor. A pastor named Bob Deffenbaugh explains nicely some of the things Luke would have been present for in the we or us passages in the second half of Acts. In Acts 16, he says, we, we see that Luke must have joined Paul with his other co-workers in Troas. This would mean that he was present when Paul received his Macedonian vision. Luke thus accompanied Paul and the others to Philippi. Connect that to what uh, many of us are studying in Sunday school. He also, Luke, was with Paul later again in Troas. When the church gathered and Eutychus fell from a window and was taken up dead, Was it Dr. Luke who pronounced this young man dead, making his healing even more emphatic? We find Luke with Paul as he was in Caesarea on his way to Jerusalem. Luke would have heard the ominous prophecy of Agabus warning Paul of what awaited him in Jerusalem. Did he agree with those who urged Paul not to go? And finally, we find Luke with Paul even on his journey to Rome. He was there with Paul when their ship was broken upon the rocks. He witnessed Paul's miraculous deliverance from the snake bite. 
and the healing of Publius's father. If these events right, that, that I just read to you don't sound familiar, don't worry. They will if you stick with us in our study over the next couple of years. Yep, you heard that right. <laughs> we should also note that Luke is an extremely capable and reliable witness to these events. It's kind of fun for me to get back to, to, to get to go back and review in the, all the introductory information of scholars about Luke and to discover that Luke is a more reliable historical witness than any other ancient writer. Did you know that? Even historians who choose to, to, to try to weed out the miraculous from the Gospels, they will admit that when you go through things that are verified in archaeology, the most trustworthy ancient historian is Luke. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't surprise us from what we would expect of the integrity of a Christian, nor does it surprise us that with the Holy Spirit superintending the writing of his truth, that that would be the case. Luke is an excellent researcher, an educated man who's a knowledgeable source of the geography, the culture, the history of the times. He's a man familiar with Judaism and, and positioned well to speak of this transitional phase in God's work among men. So we indeed do well to comfort ourselves with the superintendence of the Holy Spirit over sacred scripture. In this case, using Luke's integrity as a writer and a researcher. Interestingly, as I mentioned, historians willingly use Josephus as a reliable source for Jewish history, and yet a comparison would show that Luke is far more meticulous and careful than Josephus about geographical detail and the like, indicating that he's an even more reliable historian. Here's a tiny application for you. We honor God with intellectual integrity. After all, he is the source of truth. Finally, and I find this striking and telling of the loyalty and the labor of this servant of the Lord named Luke. When Paul writes his final letter, 2 Timothy, which we believe takes place when he was again imprisoned in Rome a second time, if indeed he was released after the imprisonment at the end of Acts. Paul says this near the close of that letter to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Luke alone is with me at the end with Paul. Luke was there. Your heart should swell just a bit with gratitude to God, and indeed some measure of respect for this author named Luke. Let's look now to it, what, when, and why Luke wrote this book. What did Luke write? Now, if you're familiar with literary terminology, we call this the genre. Acts is history, but it's an admittedly selective history that focuses on key events and key people to provide both a a factual historical as well as a theological explanation for the rapid expansion of Christianity, this movement of following Jesus, and also a theological explanation as to the depth to which Jesus changes and uses those who receive him. 
Perhaps the best description then is a theological history. There's without a doubt theological underpinning to all of this history that Luke gives, whereby God is constantly presented as intervening. God is saving. God is consoling his people. So that's what Luke wrote. When did Luke write it? Luke most likely wrote this between A.D. 62 and 64. Some liberal scholars almost always try to give all of the New Testament writings a later date than those of us who are much more conservative in our submission to the authority of God's Word, uh, more conservative in our belief that God's Word is inerrant. There's nothing in here that Jesus did not intend to say, that Jesus did not intend to fulfill. And so I will explain it this way. It would indeed be strange for Luke to have written after A.D. 70 and have failed to mention the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem, or even the earlier intense persecution under Nero beginning around 64 A.D., or he failed to mention the martyrdom of James, or Peter, or Paul himself, all in the 60s. In fact, it's a good indication the way that the Acts end so abruptly It seems to give solid support that Luke probably wrote this book circa A.D. 62. So why did Luke write this book? Since this volume picks up where the former one left off, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. We know that Luke writes to reassure believers like Theophilus that they can have certainty in their belief in Christ. You can look back and see that in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And he encourages believers that they can have confidence in Jesus' ongoing work in and through his church by the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, which is what we see here in Acts 1, 1 and 2. While it's theoretically possible that Theophilus, whose name means lover of God, he could have been an unconverted Greek who was familiar with the teachings of Jesus in the early church, it's far more likely that Theophilus was himself a newer convert who would greatly benefit by, as would many others, even we ourselves, by the confirmation of an accurate historical and theological account. And now, how has Luke organized this book? What's the structure? What's the outline? Well, the the thing that moves Luke forward, the thing that causes Luke to, to flow along is sort of a, a geographical spread of the word. So that's how we will follow along as well. It's the progress of the word, the spread of the gospel, the expansion of the church that gives us our structure. Luke regularly uses the Greek, the noun logos, word, to describe the actual message proclaimed by Jesus and his followers. And so we will see repeatedly the word of God and the word of the Lord to describe the gospel. We'll come back to the gospel in a minute. So here's a fairly traditional outline for you to see. If you grabbed a, I know this is hard for you to see on the screen, so hopefully you grabbed an outline out there in the foyer. If you didn't and you'd like to have one, please grab one on your way out. This is an outline done by Chuck Swindoll some time ago, and it's a fairly common way to look at the book of Acts. You'll notice, first of all, if you look on there, notice that the key verse of Acts is um, Acts 1, verse 8. 
because it gives us this sort of geographical expansion of what the Holy Spirit is doing in continuing the work of Jesus Christ through the apostles. And it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, the known world at the time. So there's this basic three-part breakdown in the book of the, the phase of Jewish evangelism and then this transitional part in chapters 8 through 12 that includes both the message going forth to the Jews and particularly beginning to be spread because of persecution first. And then there's an intentional expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles that comes later, especially through the ministry of Paul and others, and it goes to the ends of the known world, chapters 13 to 28, all the way to Rome, the center of the Roman Empire. I want you to notice, too, really helpful from Chuck Swindoll is the theme in Acts. In the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' followers carry the good news of Christ to the world. And then Christ in Acts, Jesus is the glorified, enthroned Savior who continues his ministry in the world by the means of the Holy Spirit working through his disciples until he returns. As we continue then, what should we expect to learn in Acts? Again, I'll tell you that there are some really important people, important places that play a prominent role in the narrative, like Peter and Paul, places like Jerusalem, again, places like Rome, all the other places that Paul will visit. But it must be clear in our minds that the principal character is God. If you were to try to look back in your Bible and find out who the principal character is in every single book, you really ought to conclude that the principal character is God. Even in Esther, where the name of Jehovah is never mentioned, the reason it ends up included in your Bible is because that is God sovereignly protecting his people. Song of Solomon should center in your thinking around the God who created marriage. And so Acts, of course, is no exception. Acts is particularly about God. Let me show you how we know that, it is, that this is the case. I want you to notice that the primary themes in Acts center around theology, who God is and what he is doing. Notice first God's plan, Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and the Holy Spirit's activity, the triune Godhead. Luke presents this as God fulfilling his plan. The thrust of Acts is that Christ continues his work by the Holy Spirit in spreading the word through the apostles, and that all who come to him as a result of their preaching of the gospel, the word of the Lord. David Peterson explains this dynamic in Acts this way, the ascended Lord Jesus is the central figure in the narrative, and that he employs his word and his spirit to advance his purpose through human agents in the world. Such is the purpose and the power of Acts, which is also the purpose and the power of the New Testament church through all generations. And it is why others have suggested that a better title than Acts, what the book was first called, or Acts of the Apostles, which actually sort of took its cue from 
titles that were like the great acts of heroes of old. And very interesting that we might give that title, but then that, that kind of makes it sound like the great acts of the apostles like Peter and Paul, right? But that's not what we find in Acts. We find that Acts is the great acts of the Holy Spirit, the continued work of Jesus Christ through his apostles. And so, too, notice the key themes of salvation in the gospel and the church still center around God. Luke expands, by the way, the meaning of salvation from a narrow view, which would have been Israel's expectation of being restored to God's favor that yields primarily a political and a geographic kingdom. Luke expands that narrow view to a broader and a deeper kingdom of spiritual restoration to God, accomplished through the work of Christ and with a wider availability to all of mankind. In Acts, salvation is from God, made possible only by the atoning work of Christ. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus, verse 11. And that salvation is enacted as a gift upon individuals by the work of the Spirit. David Peterson says again, the salvation that Luke describes is not something that humans can attain for themselves, but it is the gift of God. This is related to Luke's understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit as the agent of the exalted Lord in applying the blessings of salvation to individuals. Consider too the gospel, the message of good news that is being preached by Jesus' representatives. The gospel is ultimately about God offering a means of restoration to himself. While Luke doesn't use the noun form of the gospel very often, evangelion, he very frequently employs the verb of evangelism, evangelizo. He often uses that to describe what the people are doing in the book of Acts. It brings one of these key features to the front in Acts. In fact, this historical narrative is dominated by speeches. It's carried forward by speeches. A third of the text in Acts is public speeches. Acts contains a surprising number of speeches which convey theological perspectives on reported events and, and they carry the narrative forward. We have Christians speaking to other believers about specific issues, like Peter addressing the disciples about a need to replace Judas in the beginning of Acts. Speeches even by unbelievers reacting to the situations involving these Jesus followers. Speeches that are a defense of Christians on trial, usually with some evangelism baked in to the defense. And especially many evangelistic speeches from Christians to Jewish or Gentile audience with the goal of persuading them to turn to Christ. So this speech-heavy narrative makes sense when we consider that Luke is recounting a historical movement that is carried forward in a large part by evangelistic preaching, the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then also, I'll mention just briefly again, all of these things we will talk about so much from even the very beginning of Acts. Christ continues his work through the church. We will see what Christ accomplished through this early church, from his ascension 
the birth of the church at Pentecost to the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church all the way to Rome. Another thing to notice in Acts is God's people in transition. The focus shifts from the ministry of, of Jesus to the ministry of the apostles and the early church, these disciples of Jesus and all of their initial ministry. There's also this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. While the book of Hebrews explains the theology of that shift from the old covenant to the new, it's Acts that gives the historical, the practical outworking of the new covenant in the life of the early church. So I'll tell you now at the outset, one of the challenges of Acts is to discern in in what ways that the earliest days of the church are descriptive and in what ways they are prescriptive for the church going forward. Descriptive means giving the historical details of what actually occurred, whereas prescriptive would mean that what took place or what, what practices they had are normative or regulative for the church today. So that'll be a fun challenge for us to look at carefully, to be discerning about that. It would be wise for us to consider the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches, that they do more for us in in this regard by the way of instruction than a transitional history with unique circumstances of sometimes miraculous events. So while we shouldn't completely neglect the potential prescriptiveness of these historical accounts of the early work of the Holy Spirit in the church, We should find it necessary to compare them with more explicit instruction in the epistles, and we'll aim to do that in our study. So we have this transition from Israel as God's witness to the world, made up of, or to the church now, made up of both Jews and Gentiles as God's witness people. Again, this theology and themes and acts are centered on God. It's God's mission, and these are God's witnesses. One commentator concludes that Acts does not provide the readers with a mission in the sense of them being divinely commissioned for a particular task, but instead it presents God's mission. The sending of the Messiah to fulfill the plan of salvation set out in the scriptures is foundational to the divine mission. This makes possible the sending of the Spirit to enable his chosen witnesses to proclaim the crucified and resurrected Lord and to enable others to receive their testimony and to enjoy the fruit of his victory. As the apostolic testimony is received and believed, the Spirit continues to equip and motivate disciples to share the message with still more people, urging them to respond with repentance and faith. And in God's mission and and to God's witnesses, we learn that there's an expectation of opposition to Jesus, to the gospel, to Christianity, to the church. Therefore, even as Jesus himself had told his disciples, remember, they hate you because they hated me. It's a reminder to you that you are not of the world. The expectation of opposition We also learn in Acts that the gospel spreads not only in spite of suffering, but because of it. Because of it. Finally, there is a, not not an inordinate amount, but there's a a good deal of miraculous things happening in Acts. This is the work of God 
in particular in that age. Again, we'll have to raise the question of what is descriptive or what is prescriptive in this unique transition versus what is normative for today. So you'll, you probably already know that Acts is a kind of battleground among Christians because charismatics will make it their textbook, while anti-charismatics might be inclined to overly minimize the supernatural in the Christian life. Christian living, Bob Deffenbaugh says, is intended to be more spiritual than many non-charismatics say. And it is not nearly as continually miraculous as some charismatics maintain. Maybe we'll discover that Acts itself is not as riddled with the spectacularly miraculous as we think. Whatever the greater works are that Jesus mentioned in John 14, 12, when he told them, greater works than these will you do, it is not intended to be in the realm of the spectacular. It's the spread of the word are the greater works. So it will require careful discernment and balance between the activity and acts and what is taught in the epistles again, the letters to the churches. A conclusion from David Peterson here I find very helpful. Although we should be open to the possibility that God can and does work miracles in any age, It's important to understand the reason for signs and wonders in the New Testament being especially associated with the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. We shouldn't expect God to do the same things today, envisaging them as an aspect of the normal Christian life. So we'll look at that with a discerning eye. Okay, just briefly to to wrap this up for this morning, what should you walk away with? Here's your homework. Read Acts. Listen to Acts. Ask hard questions. Talk about it with each other. And then, of course, we'll aim to live what God is teaching us in Acts. I even put on the kids' outline, talk to your parents or your guardian about helping you work in a schedule (laughs) to read Acts, either individually or with your family. That's your homework, to carefully read or reread the book of Acts. What application other than that should you walk away with today? Be encouraged that God is at work through his people whom he has chosen. If you are one of God's chosen people, you do not have to be worried that God is not doing what he says he will do. If you're like me and you go through a phase of life where you find yourself particularly feeble, particularly ill-equipped, particularly lacking in confidence, particularly dependent on the team around you, whatever the case may be there, be encouraged that God is at work to change people and make a people for his own possession. God is making himself known. He is pleased to use his church, and you get to be a part of that. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and praise for changing people like Luke and bringing them into your story. We thank you for inviting Luke, Peter, and Paul 
people that you uniquely chose, God, to help carry forward the message of the early church. We thank you that your word teaches us there that you are still in the business of choosing people for yourself to make them your own, to be secure forever as your children, and to carry forward the mission of Jesus Christ by the power and the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you give him to us when we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our confidence is in you, God. And so it is in your name that we pray. Amen.